You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. A few weeks ago, a friend started a conversation on Facebook about being prophetic. She was wondering why so many of the people she knew who were good at speaking out prophetically were also kind of jerks. A lot of people she knew chimed in, and we all ended up having a pretty brief conversation about what she even means by the word prophetic. Today, I want to think about that question together because the things that come to mind when we think of the word prophetic end up having a big influence on how we present the faith to other people, how we behave when we're engaged in the kinds of things we think of as witness and evangelism. First, Let's look at the way the term prophetic tends to get used in Christian circles in the U.S. Then, we'll compare that to what we see from prophets in Scripture. So, what do we mean when we say that someone's prophetic? A lot of times, when we call someone else prophetic in the U.S., what we're really saying is, this is a person who's clearly and directly saying things that other people are wrong about. Not just other people, it's usually those other people. The people we call prophetic are explaining why we're right and other people are wrong. But that's when we call someone else prophetic. Plenty of people in the church also think of ourselves as having prophetic personalities. A lot of times, if we're calling ourselves prophetic, it's because we make a habit of bluntly telling people hard truths, and we don't let ourselves get swayed by the excuses people come up with when we call them out on something. And if a prophet's job in the Old Testament was to make sure that people knew when they were going astray, when they were sinning, that all makes sense. But here's the thing. Telling people hard truths was only part of a prophet's job, and it wasn't a big part of the job. The prophets in the Old Testament had a lot of jobs, a lot of different kinds of tasks they had to do if they were going to be prophets. And they didn't get to focus on just one of them. I might get this metaphor a little wrong, but think about it like a restaurant. Some jobs in a restaurant have a kind of narrow set of responsibilities. Think about bussers. They clear and clean the tables. Maybe they pitch in refilling your water. Maybe they clean dishes in back. But then you have the wait staff. Sometimes they clear tables and sometimes they refill your water. But they also do a lot more than that. They explain the menu to customers. They answer questions about the food and help people make decisions about what to order. They're the messengers bringing information back and forth between the tables and the kitchen. They serve the food. If you order a bottle of wine, they usually have to know how to do the whole uncorking ritual. They handle the checks. That means tracking orders, splitting bills, troubleshooting the credit card machines when they break down and they have to be able to keep the tables turning over. If a table's taking longer than the manager wants, they have to be able to speed those people through the rest of the meal without the customers realizing what's going on. And they have to be able to do everything I just mentioned, calmly, with a smile, with their best customer service face on. That's a much wider range of responsibilities. Sometimes... Their responsibility overlaps with the responsibilities that other people have. A busser clears table, and the waitstaff does that sometimes, too. A sommelier recommends and serves wine, and the waitstaff does that sometimes, too. 
But if you see someone use a corkscrew and you think that that means they're a waiter, you don't understand what the job of a waiter actually is. The word prophetic, we should maybe think about it the same way. If we call people prophetic because they're good at bluntly stating hard truths or because they make a habit of calling out things that seem wrong to us, then we're hollowing out what the word actually means. We're missing how big of a job it was to be a prophet, and thus we're missing out on or misunderstanding what it means to actually follow in the footsteps of the one we call prophet, priest, and king. And misunderstanding that is dangerous, because when we misunderstand the job, we're not excused from it. We don't get out of it. We're still responsible for doing it. We just end up on the hook for doing it badly. So what did prophets do, and how did they do it? Let's start by acknowledging that, yes, when something was wrong, prophets did denounce it. They called out powerful people for harming others, like when Nathan called out David. And they called out entire cities, nations, and societies for the ways in which they fostered cultures of cruelty and faithlessness and idolatry. You can see this easily in almost every book of prophecy in Scripture. But even when they did denounce things that were wrong, prophets didn't stop there. They offered concrete advice on how to fix the harm that was caused by the things that they were denouncing. They also actively participated in making things better after they denounced them. We tend to remember Jonah for his trip to Nineveh when God used him to spark repentance in the Assyrian people. But the vast majority of his work as a prophet was spent as a military advisor, helping shape the way Israel worked on confronting and containing the fairly brutal Assyrian regime. We could also look at Joseph here. He didn't just warn Egypt that a famine was coming. He set up a tax and sale system to make sure that when the famine came, the Egyptian people actually still had food to eat. Then there's the flip side of all this. Prophets didn't just denounce sin and work to counter brokenness. Prophets also affirmed things that were good, like when Elisha encouraged Naaman instead of calling him to repent. And they helped push good things forward, like Nehemiah leading a whole bunch of infrastructure repair projects in Jerusalem. So prophets called out sin and offered ideas about how to repair the damage caused by sin, and they praised virtue and they got involved in building better cultures and institutions in hands-on ways. They also understood the world around them well enough to serve as what we'd call historians today, maybe even journalists. Christians in the U.S. tend to divide the Old Testament up into the books of Moses, the books of prophecy, the books of history, and the books of poetry. But Jewish tradition doesn't make such a big distinction between the books of history and the books of prophecy. Traditionally, those are called the former prophets and the later prophets. Prophecy wasn't just about telling the future or passing judgment. It was also about explaining the past and chronicling the present. And finally, prophets modeled the public heart. They served as a sort of public conscience for God's people, teaching people who hope in God how to let that hope shape the way they reacted to the joys and injustices of living in the world as it currently is. They taught people 
how to love and celebrate what was good, like the prophets in 1 Chronicles 25, who prophesied with lyre, harps, and cymbals. And they taught people how to properly mourn the things that were sad or broken or unjust, like when Babylon sacked Israel. The false prophets kept claiming that there was nothing to mourn, that people who trust in the God of the universe don't have a reason to be distressed by what just happened. But the true prophet Jeremiah was called by God to the ministry of teaching the Israelites how to properly mourn what they had just lived through. He wrote an entire book of scripture just teaching people how to lament it. It's called Lamentations. So that's what prophets did. They chronicled history, called out sin, offered ideas about how to repair the damage caused by sin, praised virtue, got involved in building better cultures and institutions in hands-on ways, and showed people the proper way to respond to living in a broken world. But it's just as important for us to stop for a minute and think about how they did it. Something that I think gets lost when we think about prophets in the Bible is that prophesying probably wasn't a quick activity. All of Scripture is God-breathed, but that doesn't mean the books of prophecy in Scripture came easy. In the Harry Potter books, there's a character called Professor Trelawney, and she's played by Emma Thompson in the movies, and a big part of the plot revolves around one of her prophecies. And when she made the prophecy, she was in the middle of a conversation with someone else, and then suddenly she just kind of zoned out, and she rattled off a paragraph about the big villain and the person who would be able to stop him, and then she joined the conversation again. And I don't think she was even aware that she had said anything. She was just sort of a radio, just rebroadcasting some information that came to her from somewhere else. And that's the way the world thinks about what it means to deliver prophecy. But that's not the way the prophecy seems to have worked in the biblical eras. It seems like God's prophets actually put a lot of effort into making sure that they were delivering their messages in ways that would stick with people and eventually inspire people to change even when that meant delivering those messages in ways that weren't quick or easy or direct or satisfying. The most obvious example of this are the books we've already referred to as the later prophets. These aren't actually books, they're collections. Each one is a collection, not a collection of sermons or essays. They're not transcripts of conversations or minutes of meetings. They're collections of poetry, and really a accomplished poetry at that. It's hard for us to remember that because the process of translation takes away some of the music of the writing and the forms and styles of ancient Hebrew poetry are really different from the forms and styles of English poetry. But it's still true. The Psalms and the prophets have those weird line breaks in them for a reason. The Old Testament prophets weren't just historians and journalists. They weren't stenographers. They were poets, too. There's a story about one of my favorite poets telling someone that he spent three hours before lunch putting a hyphen between two words and then three more hours after lunch taking it out. That might be an extreme story and it might even be an exaggerated one, but it's probably closer to how the Psalms and prophetic poems in scripture were written than the Harry Potter model. Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah and Amos, it took work for them to communicate the way they did, and they put in the work. Speaking of Ezekiel, 
even when they weren't communicating in poetry, the prophets were still okay taking the long way around when it came to getting their prophetic messages across. Ezekiel spent ages in the royal courts, essentially making a fool of himself. The way he dressed or didn't dress, what he ate, how he cooked it, he lost credibility with a lot of people and dignity in the eyes of even more people. But he was doing it so that his actions would stick in their minds and so that his actions would help drive home the things he was trying to say. Or think about Hosea, who put his messed up personal life on display for the sake of giving the people around him a story they'd remember that would illustrate something important about the way God pursues us, forgives us, and heals us. But even when they were speaking directly and conversationally, when they weren't writing music and poetry and they weren't turning their lives into performance art, the prophets were still willing to hold back if it meant helping people repent. When someone calls out a politician or a movement or a party, if that person who's speaking out is acting like a prophet, the prophet they're acting like is probably Jonah in Nineveh. But Jonah in Nineveh's not a good role model for us. The book of Jonah makes it pretty clear that Jonah's attitude's only helpful to us as a counterpoint to the way people are supposed to behave if they really understand God's heart and goals. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he does, but he's not happy about it. He doesn't want to see the people there repent. He doesn't want to see the Ninevites receive mercy. So when he shows up, he gives the worst gospel presentation ever. In modern parlance, we'd call what Jonah did malicious compliance. He technically did what God asked, but he did his best to do the deed without actually accomplishing the goal. So when the Ninevites responded and seemed to repent anyway, it made him so, so angry. Jonah's heart is, at this moment, completely at odds with God's heart. And God could have just told Jonah that. He could have given him the information bluntly and directly. Quit being a baby about this. I love people more than you do. You don't seem to really understand what I want for this world. But he doesn't do that. He knows that if he leads with the hard truths, Jonah isn't going to actually understand the message. He's not going to win Jonah over. So he doesn't lead with the hard truths. He starts with an object lesson that gets Jonah's attention and helps Jonah develop sympathy. Then he starts making other connections. And even then, he does it surprisingly gently, given how off-base Jonah actually is. And that's something prophets in the Old Testament do actually do, holding back if it's going to help someone repent. It's an aspect of God's heart that they do actually work to reflect. And again, a good example is Nathan. King David had either had an affair with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, or raped her. And then he deliberately set Uriah up to die on the battlefield. David's plan was to turn Bathsheba into a widow so that he could then take her as his next wife. Nathan's job as a prophet was to make sure David knew how morally terrible this plan was. But he doesn't start by saying, let me get this straight and make sure you have this straight. This is what you did. This is why it's wrong. Now you know it's wrong. His goal doesn't seem to be to just speak the truth as bluntly as he can. 
It doesn't seem to be to just make sure the moral lines are drawn between shalom and ra, between goodness and sin. It seems to be to win David over to repentance. Coming in with a hot take would probably feel really good. It would have let him vent his frustration, and he'd be able to say that he did his job. He spoke the truth. But he knew that that wouldn't actually accomplish God's goal. Setting the bar at speaking the truth wasn't setting the bar high enough. He had to share the truth in a way that would actually work for changing David's heart. And he couldn't do that without knowing the person he was prophesying to well enough to find a way to broach the topic that would actually work for fostering repentance. Leading with hard truths isn't what makes someone prophetic. If we see someone throwing bombs on Twitter or telling off people we don't like and we think the word prophetic describes them, then our vision of a prophet is a lot closer to Jonah in Nineveh than it is to Nathan or Jeremiah or Nehemiah or Ezekiel. We're selling the prophets short. We're flattening them out. And when we do that, we're also selling God short. Prophets had to understand God's hope for the world, not just his judgment against it. His compassion for people, not just his anger or his impatience with them. And they put in the work to explain that hope and that judgment, that compassion and that anger, in ways that people were actually ready and willing to receive. Please pray with me. God, Hebrews tells us that you spoke through the prophets at many times and in many ways. But we use the word prophetic now in a way that makes it seem like prophets only speak in one or two ways and only at times when we are right and other people are wrong or we think we're right and other people are wrong. Our hearts are prideful. We are quick to seize on opportunities to point at others and declare judgment. And we're really good at telling ourselves that we're serving you when we're really serving ourselves. Teach us to have hearts like yours. You didn't want Nineveh to suffer. You wanted the city to repent. You didn't want Jonah to know he was wrong. You wanted him to understand and appreciate and take part in your empathy, and compassion. Teach us to have the patience and humility of Nathan, who is willing to hold his tongue and help make sure that David would actually be willing to listen and repent. And teach us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who spoke with wisdom and truth at the same time. Your word tells us that you sent him into this world to draw people to you, so we don't want the conversations we have and the actions we take as his ambassadors to end up pushing people away. It's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us. Visit our website for a transcript of this episode, including action items and a link to Faith in Place, a devotional that can help us start to get a better idea of what work God is trying to do in our neighborhood or town. Thanks to Lauren Larson for producing this episode and to future guest Alicia Akins for helping out with some of the research into the prophets. We'll be back next week with more on how the gospel can empower us to think, speak, and act differently 
in the public square. 